You do know I charge by the hour, right? No sense talking to her. She doesn't understand. She doesn't respond. Excuse me, could you stop with the phone right now? Can you please tell me why are you so upset with your mother? You see, I told you she's so stubborn. This happened over a week ago. Well, what happened that was so tragic? It was nothing really. So silly, actually. Silly? You're in my life. You're overreacting as usual. Okay, okay, calm down. Tell me exactly what happened. Well, she posted a picture of her and her friend on Instagram, and I just... She liked my post. She actually liked my picture. What is the big deal? Now everybody knows that my mom likes my post and that my mom follows me on Instagram. I'm ruined. Oh, wow. Uh, that doesn't sound so tragic to me. In fact, it sounds rather minor. Uh, uh, excuse me. Excuse me. Hi, doctor. Hi. Hi. No, excuse me. This is a private session. And I know, McBrainy, I have talked to you uh, over and over about privacy and confidentiality with my patients. Well, yes, excuse me, but um, I couldn't help but overhearing through the thin walls uh, that this young lady uh, has a valid reason for being in a tragedy because. Technically, by definition, being tragic is extremely mournful, melancholy, and pathetic, and, well, just look at her. <laughs> yes, but... Uh, okay, but uh, reasons uh, or reactions to a crisis or traumatic uh, events vary considerably from person to person. Some people can seem like well-functioning individuals and, and, you know, maybe struggling with disruption and loss caused by the disaster. Oh, boy. Do you have anything else to say? Well, well, because of this, the one caring for the patient has to be making sure that they recognize common reactions to a traumatic event. Now, following symptoms may be disbelief, emotional numbing, nightmares, and other sleep disturbances, anger, moodiness, and irritability, forgetfulness, flashbacks, survival get hypervigilance, loss of hope, social withdrawal, and isolation from others. This is ridiculous. It was just an Instagram post. You know, McBrainy. Thank you, I guess, thank you for your lengthy and obtuse opinion. But as you can see, these are my patients, and if I need you, I will call you in the future for your expertise. I just don't understand these people. I try to help them, and they just don't appreciate it. <laughs> now, I'm so sorry about that. I hope that doesn't happen uh, again. Hello, uh, hello excuse me, doctor? Uh, doctor, uh, just one more thing. Uh, individuals suffering from PTSD experience flashbacks, nightmares, sleep disturbances, and other symptoms, which often become so severe that they interfere with daily life. Now, while PTSD is serious oh. disorder, psychotherapy and medication no. are often effective treatments. I am so sorry about this. Uh, could, you, could you make another reschedule with my secretary on your way out? I think I need to make an appointment with my psychiatrist. Is she going to be okay? I hope so. I'm glad you're not wacko like that other crazy lady. So sorry I was mad at you. Let me just thank them. What, a, uh, what an interesting dilemma we run into every single day. Now, it's not just if you have children, it's the way we think and the things that we go through. I mean, how do you prepare for what you don't know is going to happen? How do you prepare for tragedy? Now, 
some of us will look at a situation and say, that's not that tragic. But to the person in the situation, it's tragic. Like we go through things that other people will never understand. And we try to explain it to people, but for some reason, you're the one that's feeling emotional or you're the one that's feeling that you're living in darkness or you're isolated or no one cares or you're the one that's feeling hurt and everyone is trying to comfort you as best as possible or they're trying to find a way to fix you and you're still trying to get a grasp on what's happening in life or maybe you're in a season that you're saying there's nothing really tragic happening around me I've been through some tragic moments but nothing tragic right now you know what is interesting is that we don't know how to prepare for what we don't know of. And even if we're in a good season, how do we prepare for if something does become tragic? Now, we never, we never hope for that. We don't, we don't look for that or, or we don't live in fear. However, we can find ways on how we can prepare for even the most tragic situations that we don't know is even going to come our way. We can put some things kind of like under the belt or, or in our shoes or in our pockets to say, we're going to walk in this way so that if there is anything that is unexpected that is coming my way, at least I'll be that much more prepared. Now, if this is your first time, we have some notes in your bulletin that you can take out. And what that will do is it'll help you to follow along. We're going to have some scriptures that we're going to read. Also, some points that will help us in, in how we can prepare for the unknown when it comes to tragedy. How do we cope with tragedy? Where does the help come from? Or do we just go to friends? Do we see a doctor? What do we do? How do we cope with tragedy? See, what you do in the midst of a tragic situation will determine the outcome, not necessarily of the situation, but of our attitude and the way we see life. See, there are tragic situations that happen every day. And for some, it's on a small scale. Like someone takes your slippers. That's tragic. Some on a larger scale, you lose a loved one. For some, a, a, a tragic situation is your finances aren't in the best shape. For others, maybe you're in a good, a good situation financially and you're doing well, yet you're still kind of... Uh, uh, you're in murky waters because you don't know if you're going to always have that security. Or maybe in your marriage, a tragic situation is your spouse came home late. You don't know where they went. You're trying to track them down. You're trying to text your friends. You're having people spy on them. You're following them. You're stalking your own loved ones. And you're trying to figure out, how do, how do I make this work? Because now I'm living in fear. I don't know what's going to happen with people. And we can live in such fear and in such unknown territory that we can't even live. We just exist from moment to moment, from a tragic situation to another tragic situation, or because of the way we think, even though things are normal and things are okay, just the way we think causes us to feel like there's a tragic moment right in our very midst. Now, today is September 6th, and this is the first day we started our new service times, which doesn't affect first service, but it does affect second service and third service. And so it's not that tragic. It's just a little change in our service times. Uh, today also, if you're a, a football fan, NFL, uh, today starts the brand new season of the NFL season. And for some of you, if you're that, uh, you're so much of a, a diehard fan, you saw a lot of trades happening 
a lot of injuries happening, and you're thinking your season is over. You're thinking, oh, that's tragic. My quarterback went down. This person got traded. That person got injured. And so just on the sports side, you feel like there's a tragedy about to happen in your schedule, your your wins and losses. And because you take it so serious, you don't even want to come to church anymore because it's that bad. Or you come to church and you pray to God, Lord, help my team win. Let the Detroit Lions dominate every single person this year. You know, just things like that. You just kind of throw up to God. See, tragedy is in itself, it's, it's almost subjective. It, it's, a, it's, a personal, it's a personal perspective because it's your tragedy and it's real to you. Other people may not understand it, but you understand it, and God understands it. And even though people will look at you and think, well, it's not that bad, at least, and then they'll throw in, at least this is not happening, at least you still have this, at least it's not as bad as so-and-so, even though they'll throw that in, it doesn't change the fact that you're still living in this season. See, what God will never do is, God will never say, well, at least, what God will do is he'll say, you come to me. Let's, let's just sit together. He's not going to tell you what you're doing is wrong. He's not going to point at you and say, well, it's your fault or you should have done this or you could have done that. What God will do is he will sit with you and he will weep with you and he will care with you and he will love with you. He just wants to be with you. This morning, we're going to take a look at a couple of stories from the Bible that will help us to understand how do we cope with, with tragedy. A story of this man named David. He was one of the greatest kings in Israel. We're going to take a look at his life. We're also going to take a look at a life of a man named Lazarus who had some uh, loving sisters and they, they, they loved their brother. And we're going to also take a look at the book of Genesis in the beginning with Adam and Eve and how things didn't go according to how they thought it was going to turn out. And so we're going to look at different Bible stories and characters and, and see what God says about how to cope with tragedy. Our first scripture, and this has been our scripture throughout this series, how to prepare for the unknown, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, and we're going to read this together because I really want this to get into our hearts. I want this to be something that we can memorize if you had not already so that when we're, when we're going through whatever we go through or if someone else is going through something, we can have this on our hearts, okay? We're going to read it together. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. Ready? Go. That is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. See, God prepares everything for us. Well, what if I'm going through a difficult season? What if, what if like my spouse and I, it's, we're okay, but it could be better? Well, God is preparing the way for those days ahead. What about my teenager? What, I mean, I could relate to what they just showed us this morning. When I talk to my teenager or my young adult, there's just no connection there. No, God is preparing the way. He's making things ready. So we've got to always look towards God rather than the actual situation. Otherwise, we'll get stuck in the situation. I've always heard it said this way that we may never be able to change a situation, and God may not change our situation, but God can definitely use a situation to change us. And He makes us better. He makes us wiser, and He gives us wisdom for what He's preparing us for. 
I'm going to read in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 30. If you do have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, I'm going to read it anyway. 1 Samuel chapter 30, it's in the Old Testament. And it's talking about David. And David was a warrior. He was anointed king of Israel at an early age, but didn't ascend to the throne until years later. And David uh, knew about God. He was a shepherd. But now he's, he's becoming a leader and people are following him. And so David would do these different raids and he would go from town to town. And it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag, it's a city, on the third day that the Amalekites, which are their enemies, had invaded the south and Ziklag attacked Ziklag and, oh, excuse me, uh, that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were, who were there from small to great. So they, they attacked the city. Not only that, but they took all the women and children that King David was overseeing. I mean, he wasn't king at that time, but that David was overseeing at that time. But they did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. Now already, you're going you're, you're gonna to panic when you see this. And they burned, it was burned with fire. Their sons, their wives, and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. Have you ever been in a situation but that, that you just have no more power to weep? Like it's just so distressful, uh, su- such a tragic situation that you have no more strength to cry. That's what was happening with these people because everything was destroyed. David's two wives, okay, don't get messed up on that, okay? He wasn't doing what was right. David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you, shall surely t- for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. So God gave him hope. He said, no, go pursue them. Go get your family. And you're not going to fail. You're not going to fail, David. So David went and he and the 600 men who were with him and came to the brook Besor where they, those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind. Listen, when, it, when there's a tragic situation, not everyone's going to be with you. Not everyone's going to be with you step, step for step. Not everyone's going to show up. Not everyone's going to call. Not everyone's going to bring you dinner. Not everyone's going to understand what you're going through. Some people have so much responsibilities that even, they, even, a, even if they wanted to be with you, they're just not able And sometimes we can be hurt by that and we can say, well, no one was there for me. But David understood that. So he and the 400 men went and the 200 stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross the brook. When they found 
and then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate and they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of figs, of cake figs, and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him. For he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. So this guy is almost dead. And David comes upon him. Then David said to him, To whom do you belong and, and where are you from? And the man said, I, I'm a young man from Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. Now the Amalekites are the one that just raided their city. And my sister, uh, my, my, my sister, my master, something wrong with my eyes or something. Maybe I need glasses. And my master left me, left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. Now, imagine if you came across the person who was responsible for what just happened to your home. The person that stole from you, the person that broke into your house, the person that did something to a family member, that person you came face to face with. Well, David is now face to face with the enemy. But David is smart. He says this, well, can you take me down to your troops? It's like now he's going to use this guy to find his way to the troops. So the man said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were, the enemies, spread out all over the land eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. So now David sees this. Now right after tragedy, you see people dancing and singing and they're joyful, but you're not. You're going through a, a bunch of heartache and pain. David sees this and he takes action. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day not a man of them ex escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled so David recovered all that's the promise of God David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away and David rescued his two wives and nothing of theirs was lacking either small or great sons or daughters spoil or anything which they had taken from them David recovered all see even in the midst of tragedy David was able to stay focused on the Lord. And even though he had some problems along the way, he still was able to focus on the Lord. He knew that not everyone was going to go up with him. He was okay with that. Some people are seasonal in our lives. Some will be with us. Some will not be with us. Some will be lifers. Some will just be for a season. And David knew that. It seems as if life goes on for everyone else. They're dancing. They're singing. But everything stops for you. And you're in that situation. In the book of John, John chapter 11, this is the story of Lazarus. John is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four Bibles, uh, the first four books of the New Testament. There was a certain man who was sick. His name was Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary where his sister Martha and her lived. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. He was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. 
So the sisters sent a word to Jesus. I don't know how they did that. A messenger. They didn't have text message, so it took a while. Jesus got the message that the one who you love is sick. In other words, what they're saying is, I know you care about this man. We're just letting you know he's sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he went right away and got there just in time before Lazarus died. It would sound like that would make sense, right? It would sound like because Jesus loved them, he went right away and saved Lazarus. But that's actually not what it says. I just, I just said that to, to see if you're paying attention and if you know the story, you're like, what Bible is he reading from? I'm not coming to this church anymore. <laughs> but that's not what Jesus did. Watch what Jesus does. So when Jesus heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Two more days. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in a day, does he not stumble? Well, because he sees the light of, his, of, of this world. Oh, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Now, <laughs> the disciples say, Jesus, you shouldn't go there because people are going to kill you. And Jesus talks about the clock. He talks about the time of day. And his disciples are thinking, like, what are you talking about? We just said if you're going to go there, they're going to stone you. And you're talking about daytime, nighttime. If we go nighttime, it's dangerous. Daytime, we can see. What are you talking about? And Jesus continues in his in his talk with them and Jesus says well our friend Lazarus sleeps but I go that I may wake him up then his disciples said Lord if he sleeps then he will get well however Jesus spoke of his death but they thought that he was speak he was speaking about taking rest in sleep so they were thinking oh Jesus is talking about Lazarus being sick and and if he's if he's sick he needs to rest and and if he rests he's going to get better and Jesus is hearing this, and so finally Jesus says plainly, okay, listen, Lazarus is dead. He's dead. Like, wait, what? You just said he, wasn't, he was just sick, that it wasn't going to end in death. How, how can you now say he's dead? And Jesus continues, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Wait. Jesus, you just said you're glad that you weren't there for the disciples' sake? Why is that so? Why, why are you glad? I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. 
So now Thomas is speaking gibberish. He's like, let's just go. Let's all die. Let's go. Let's, that's our brother. Let's go. Have you ever been in that situation? Tragic thing happens. You're like, I wish it was me. I wish it was me. Oh, you're going through that heartache? Man, I'm with you. I'm with you. My heart is there. That was Thomas. He's like, man, I'm with you. Let's all go. Let's all die. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Lazarus was in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, which is in contrast to what Jesus said. I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. And Martha is saying, well, if you were here, my brother would not have died. But even now, but even now, but even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection and at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. I am the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. (laughs) Jesus didn't call for her. It's like Martha is trying to, trying to, Comfort Mary and saying, we need to go see Jesus. Has anyone ever done that to you? That, oh, so-and-so said you should go church. They didn't say that. You want them to. Oh, you, you need to come to church because you need Jesus. Well, that's true. We all do. And that's what she was trying to do with Mary, trying to comfort her the best way that she could. And all she knew was, I got to get Mary to Jesus. And sometimes we hear that. That all we need is to get to Jesus. As soon as she heard that, Mary arose quickly and came to Jesus. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. Then Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, and she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So same thing that her sister said, which means they felt the same thing. They were going through the same thing. Maybe they discussed it among themselves. Maybe in the beginning it was, oh boy, man, if if Jesus was here, it would have been better. Yeah, it would have been different. Yeah, maybe Jesus could have saved them. Yeah, he could have. He healed many people. Maybe if Jesus was here, he wouldn't have died. And maybe you've been in a tragic situation and and not necessarily blaming God, but you've said, God, if you did love me, then this. Jesus, if you did care, then this. But the story's not over yet. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Jesus groaned in his spirit and he was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. In the shortest book in the, uh, the shortest scripture in the Bible, Jesus wept. Did you know that when you weep, Jesus weeps with you? He's not looking at you saying, well, see, it's your fault. Well, you should have done different. No, he weeps with you. 
Jesus didn't weep because Lazarus was in the tomb. He wept because of Mary and Martha, what they were going through. He was able to weep with them because of his heart and compassion. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Then the Jews said, look at how he loved Lazarus. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaned, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God? Did I not say to you? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. He didn't say, hey, dead guy. Hey, you in there. Uh, Excuse me, is there anyone in there? He didn't just walk in there and say, hey, um, can you come out? Can, can Can you make your way out? He said, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. He called him by name. And probably he called him my name because if he just said, come forth, all the dead people would come out because that's how powerful Jesus is. So he calls us by name. He knows us as individuals. And he loves us that much. It's possible. It's possible. We see this in our day and age. It's possible to keep people from dying. We have medicine. We have hospitals. We have doctors. It's possible to keep people from dying. And that's what Mary and Martha was dealing with. But it is almost virtually impossible that they were thinking, that he can bring a dead person to life. They were thinking in the natural that they were saying, if he had been here while he was sick, he could have made him better, but now it's too late. That's what they were saying. It's too late. Listen, with Jesus, it's never too late. It is never too late. He has the power. He is the resurrection. He is the life. You might be thinking, okay, so my loved one just passed away. Could Could not Jesus have done something? Yeah, he could have, but he didn't for some reason. There were other people who died in Lazarus' days, but he did that to display the glory of God, that specific thing. He does everything with a purpose, and even though we live in a tragic situation, there is a purpose with it. It doesn't end there. The story is not there. The story is not finished yet. In Genesis chapter 3, we see where things were going well, and then all of a sudden, Things go bad. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The serpent represents the devil, Satan himself. And he said to the woman, the serpent says to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of, the, eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. There's that word again, die, death. 
For God knows that in that day that you will surely not, you will surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the, good was, that the fruit was good for food and that the fruit looked good, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave to her husband with her and, and he ate. Then the eyes of both, both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. It's interesting. The moment we are in a tragic situation with God, we hide. We cover ourselves. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? So he said, well, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And, and God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, well, the woman whom you gave to me. Sometimes husbands say that, Lord, I didn't ask for this, but you married us. The woman that you gave to me she gave me of the tree, and then I ate. Lord, it wasn't my fault. It was the woman's fault. Lord, it's not me. It's my wife. Lord, it cannot be me. I'm the perfect one in the home. It's my wife. It must be her. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And then the woman said, it was the serpent. The serpent deceived me. It wasn't me. It was the serpent. And then I ate. It wasn't me, Lord. It was my children. It wasn't, it wasn't me, Lord. It was my boss. It's not me. It's them. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat the dust of all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel to the woman he said I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain you shall bring forth children so that's where the pain comes from women so sorry it's from way back then your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you then to Adam he said, because you have indeed heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. In other words, you listen to your wife, not me. You too are going to live in this land that is cursed. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Now God didn't curse Adam and Eve. He cursed the ground. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return, from the, re, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. In other words, what God was saying is, you're going to work hard all your life now. You're now separated from me. I was your life. I gave you everything. I, I included everything in this deal of creating you, but now it's separated. 
Now, you've got to work now for your life. You're going you're gonna to work for a living. You're going to toil in this cursed ground. It's like the heart of God was broke. And Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin. God still takes care of them even though. God made them tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put his hand Take, take out his, uh, put out his hand and, and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east end of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It all started with that act of disobedience. The fourth story, the book of John, chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, tragic, right? This is your wedding. You run out of drinks, no water, nothing, no sodas, no nothing. Whatever you have drinking there, nothing of that nature, all gone. Tragic. You're stressing out. You're wondering, how come, how come we don't have enough juice? How come we don't have enough drink? Who went wrong? Where, where did we go wrong? This is, this is now ruining my wedding. This is ruining my day. It's tragic. And the mother of Jesus said to him, Jesus, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, woman. Woman? Who calls their mom Woman? But Jesus wasn't necessarily addressing her as mom. He was addressing her as a fallen creature, the woman. What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, yet his mother said to the servants. So Jesus' mom kicks into mom gear. Yeah, you address me as woman, but I'm your mama. I'm kicking into mama gear. Mother said to, his serv- to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. That's a mom. I know what you said, Jesus, but I'm your mother. Whatever he says to you, go do it. You listen to Jesus. Listen to him. She wasn't saying, listen to my son. She was saying, listen to the Lord. Listen to Jesus. Listen to what he's going to tell you. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set six water pots of stone before them according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw out, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. So they run out of wine. Jesus says, go get some water. The disciples are probably thinking, you're not going to replace wine with buckets of water. They're, they're drinking the best wine. You're going to give them water now? Why, why are you going to do that? It's like you serve your, your guests the best dessert and now you're going to give them generic cookies because you ran out? No, no. why are you going to give them water? But just do what Jesus said. And so they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
Because they're looking at it thinking, what? wait a minute, we just, what? We just got water and they drink, he's drinking wine. How in the world did that happen? We, we, this is the water, right, guys? Yeah, we got water. Okay, we all carried it together. Nobody put wine in here. There's no possible way we could have filled this thing up with wine that quick. Okay, we all carried it, right? Yes. Okay, didn't we just give it to him? How in the world is that wine? Now, remember, Jesus had not performed any miracles yet. This was his first miracle. And so they took it, and the master is wondering, oh, what is this? The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And then when the guests have drunk well, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. In other words, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he says, bro, like this is the best drink ever. Usually people bring out the best drink, so when everybody boss, they all drink, they all drunk, they, they, uh, they can't remember, or they, they don't care what else they're drinking, but you, you bridegroom, you have, you kept the best for the last. Who does that? Well, Jesus does. He gives you the best. He gives you the very best. He goes from glory to glory. He kept the best for last. You know the best wine, what it's called? The best, it's called best wine because when they would gather the grapes together in the crates and they would drop the crates down and stack it, as the grapes were being crushed, just by dropping it, the juice would flow and that was the freshest juice possible. In other words, what the master of the wedding was saying to the bridegroom is, you gave us the freshest. That's what Jesus does. In the midst of tragedy, he'll bring a fresh word. In the midst of tragedy, he'll bring a fresh spirit. In the midst of tragedy, he'll bring a fresh anointing on your life. He'll, he'll cover you with grace. He'll bring freshness to your life. Only Jesus can do that because he goes from glory to glory. He sees your pain. He sees our suffering. He knows the tragedy situations that we're in. He sees every single moment. He knows and understands. And he turns it to be the very best season. He's able to do that. We're going to go over three quick points. The first is this, that every miracle starts with a problem. Every miracle starts with a problem. There's no miracle without a problem. You look throughout the Bible, every miracle that we rejoice in, that we thank God for, always started out with a problem. David started out with a problem. His city was burnt down. His, his children and family members and community was demolished and destroyed but taken as captive. Jesus' first miracle starts with a problem. There's no wine. John 12, 24, he says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies. In other words, it starts off with tragedy. It remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. See, the intensity of a tragic situation is measured by one's ability to do something about it and Sometimes we measure our situation by our abilities when we should be measuring it by God's abilities. To Mary, Martha, as well as Lazarus, it, it was devastating. But to Jesus, it wasn't that bad because of his ability. He still wept, but not for the situation. He wept for the people who were in that situation. Imagine Lazarus waiting for Jesus while he was sick. Lazarus, hoping that Jesus would come, hoping that his good friend would come, the one that heals, the one that could, could turn a, a blind person to be able to see all the doubts, the disillusion, and then death. Lazarus died without seeing Jesus do anything in those last 
few moments that he thought. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. In other words, our life, even though we go through tragedy, he leads us in triumph, even through tragedy, towards victory, so that others may find hope wherever we may go, that it does not end this way, but that you might believe that Jesus was sent, that God sent him. The second thing, we find strength in the Lord. This is what David did. You find strength in the Lord. See, it's good to find comfort in friends and family, but really our strength needs to be anchored in the Lord. We can actually find comfort in the wrong things. And through the strength of the Lord, we can triumph over tragedy. You can, you can cope when there's tragedy because there's hope in Christ. And he leads us in that direction. See, your darkest moment may just very well be your most defining moment. It's because he's the light of the world. And if we're not strengthened by the Lord, then we'll be weakened by the world. God says, I'm going to be your strength. And if you're not able to triumph over tragedy, then tragedy is going to triumph over you, but not with Christ. He's our victory. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6 says, David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters, and they began to talk, they began to talk of stoning him. But David found strength in the Lord. It didn't get worse because David found strength in the Lord his God. See, tragedy can wake us up, can it? Or you can stay asleep, depending on how tired you are. Tragedy wakes us up. But it depends how tired we are if we're going to stay asleep. Therefore, here's the last thing. Process emotions appropriately. It's a process. Every tragedy comes with a process. Every tragedy comes with God leading us towards triumph. There's a, it's a process. There's no magic in, in tragic. Just remember that. There's no magic in tragic. It's a process. It's not a click on, click off. It's a, it's a process. Some process for people takes longer than others. And we just, we walk with them through it. Coping with tragedy is like, some of you like Tabasco sauce. You put Tabasco on everything. Chili pepper water on everything. Tabasco, everything. You, just, you put rice with your Tabasco. You just love Tabasco sauce. Tabasco takes three years to make. It's a process. That's why it tastes so good. It's a process. See, the Lord takes us through a process because He is good. The end result is victory. Each of these real-life Bible situations that we just read is very difficult to deal with and were very difficult to deal with, yet each one was able to process their emotions appropriately so that the situation wasn't their focus. The situation can become our focus and distract us by what God is doing. So the focus was staying close to the Father so that they could continue to do what was right, so that they could continue following the Lord. There was a process. I'm going to close with this scripture. 1 Peter 4, verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Listen, you and I will suffer for doing good. But not necessarily towards triumph. You must choose that. 
He's leading us towards triumph, but we got to choose that every step of the way. Even though you may weep, become frustrated or angry, or you feel like giving up, you're ready to throw in the towel. Jesus is weeping with you. He weeps with us. He embraces us and understands what suffering is. If anyone understands what suffering is, if anyone understands tragedy, it's Jesus himself, for he was nailed to the cross. Talk about tragedy. Talk about understanding what Lazarus went through. Jesus understands death. God understands the loss of a loved one, if you would look at it that way, that when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus himself said, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, Jesus felt that. Jesus felt what we feel. He felt like God turned his back on him. He felt that. He felt death. But he did that. He suffered according to the will of God so that we may find life. Jesus became the grain of wheat that died so that it would rise again and produce much fruit. He took it upon himself. That is what the scriptures mean. When it says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who loved him. For those who love him. God is preparing the way. Never forget that. He knows exactly what he's doing. Amen. Would you pray with me? Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we know that we'll go through life's most difficult situations, but you see every moment. You know where we've come from. You've, you understand the fallen nature of mankind. You, but you still clothe us. You still are with us. You weep with us. Sometimes we think, well, if you were here, if you did this, then it would have been better. But Lord, you have something greater in store for us because you're always preparing the way. And we can cope with tragedy because the situation may be tragic, but you're not. You're our God. You're our Savior. You are the resurrection, the life. You're the one that we find hope in. And we're not alone. That you're there with us every step of the way. Sometimes we don't feel you're there, but you are. May our hope and may our eyes not be on our situation, but that it would be on you from this day forward. And if you believe that, would you say amen? And that's your prayer, amen. Can we just thank our Lord for being the resurrection and the life?